so we are still in Christmas, and it's good that we are, right? I mean, you can't get enough Christmas, I hope. I hope you had a great week. I hope you had a great Christmas this year. It was warm, and uh, I don't know, that's good. Maybe you got outside. Um, but I'm glad we're still in Christmas this morning. Uh, welcome to all of you here in the room in Millard. Um, shout out to our Elkhorn campus. Uh, so uh, I miss you guys. You're my home in Elkhorn. I'm glad that Jeff could be with you today. Um, shout out to the guys in Mod 7. Um, we're pulling for you. We love you. As Jeff always says, we believe that your best days are ahead. And to all of you watching online as well, so glad you've joined us in that way. But glad you're here today. Glad, like I said, we're still in Christmas. And as Melissa said, my name is Brad Zook. I'm the Elkhorn Campus Pastor. And uh, before we jump in today, real quick, I want to highlight and introduce our Elkhorn staff. We have yet to do this technically, even in Elkhorn. And uh, maybe some of you, if you came to the open house out in Elkhorn end of October, you met these individuals and you met even their spouses. So Jeff always says, you know, it's totally true. We're one church in multiple locations. Uh, we're also one staff, and we're, we're always one staff. And yet, there's a few individuals whose primary focus is really out in Elkhorn. And so check out this picture real quick. I just want to introduce these people to you. I'm going to start on the right side. So Erin Nelson is down there on the right. She's our Kidsman Director. Then we have Ryan Pramberg, who's up on top of the sign. Ryan's uh, director of student ministry out there. Um, Julie Horan is our uh, director of guest services, so leads host team, leads the events in Elkhorn. Uh, Michael Klopp is there in leather. So Michael is a pastoral resident. We have a number of residents and interns. Uh, Michael actually co-leads our college ministry, BCM on Sunday nights. Uh, but he also is a campus, campus pastor resident, so he's always out there in Elkhorn, sort of my right-hand man. And then there's me. And then I got to show you this, too. When we posted this, we just took this a couple weeks ago, and it was on social media. Michael's friends from college got a hold of this. And I don't know if it was a leather jacket, but one, that's great Photoshopping. I don't know why I'm still in the picture. Michael, I'm like your, uh, your trusty sidekick there. But you need to get a Harley, Michael, wherever you're at. If you don't have a motorcycle, get one, because you, you, yeah, you should be on one. Um, it's been great out there, too. Uh, it was great out there for Christmas Eve. It's just smaller, and it's cozy, and it's been going well. Attendance has been consistent. But do want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Brookside. Um, so many of you um, not only are championing that this, this first campus, um, physical campus, kind of, minus the Mod 7, but you're giving over and above um, to really get that going for the next couple of years. And so um, really appreciative of you as a church. As we said, we're in Christmas still today, Christmas for us misfits, wrapping up. And so each week in this series, we've um, been acknowledging, first of all, number one, that we are all misfits. In one way or another, whether we care to admit it or not, we've all at some point felt like the underdog, felt maybe a little out of place, felt like outsiders. And so it's not just there's misfits in Scripture We've all been there before, but secondly, we're looking at different characters and stories in the book of Luke in which different people have experienced being misfits. So a group of 10 lepers, right? Week one in Luke 17. The next week, we looked at what the Bible calls just the sinful woman who anointed Jesus. And then last week, Tim talked about the story of Zacchaeus, right? The, the misfit who didn't really fit the bill of a misfit. He looked very successful on the outside, and yet um, he probably felt like one. He was probably very alone. And today, we're looking at probably the most well-known of the Christmas passages. So we're looking directly at a Christmas passage today, looking primarily at the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And so all of these people 
were misfits in different ways, and yet all of them had a God encounter that left them radically changed. So this morning we say, Christmas happened, now what? What do we do? How do we respond? And so we want to look at the characters in Luke 2 and ask the question, how can encountering Jesus change our lives today? And so grab your Bibles if you have one, or grab your phone and open your Bible app. I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bible. And I'm just going to read this passage to begin with, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And this is a passage that we're all familiar with, and we heard much of this read even on Christmas Eve. If you were here, it says this, Luke 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard about, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So again, I want to start with this question this morning. How should I respond to the birth of Jesus Christ? How should we respond to that? The Son of God is born into the world, right? Christmas. But so what? And now what? What should we do about this? How should we respond? And so I think this text that gives us three answers, and they're in each of these three main paragraphs. Now, this morning, I'm going to go in reverse order, kind of just for fun, and maybe you'll see why at the end. But this, uh, this text tells us three things we should do. Number one, we should hear well. We need to learn to hear the message. Secondly, we need to make peace. The message of the angels is peace on earth. Make peace. And thirdly, fear not. We need to deal with our fears and even our fear of the Lord. Hear well, make peace, and fear not. First, we need to hear well. So look at this last passage, this last paragraph, verses 16 through 20. And this is the least talked about part of the passage. And yet it's very, very important because Luke is talking here about hearing well. If you look right at verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard. And then if you move up a little bit, to verse 17 and 18, it says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So they heard, and then they go, and they see the baby Jesus, but then they go and tell everyone else. So there's two stages here. First, the angels speak to the shepherds, and then the angel, or I'm sorry, the shepherds speak to everyone else. And actually, take a look at verse 19 we see that one of the people the shepherds tell is Mary. 
In fact, the shepherds tell the story of what happened to them, to both Mary and Joseph, and they find the baby there. But they tell Mary, and we also know from chapter 1 that Mary, Mary knew what was going on, right? Because an angel had stopped to visit her, and yet she also heard, she listened to the shepherds. Now, what's going on here? Luke is telling us something about the importance of hearing well, and also how we can hear the message ourselves, the word of God. You know, one of, the, uh, one of the ongoing issues in my marriage is how well I really listen. And many, many times I get home or I, um, who knows, something comes up and I maybe even tell that Leslie's dressed up a little nicer or something. And I go, um, what's going on? Is something happening tonight or this is happening tomorrow? Somehow I hear of things and it catches me off guard. And I say, I didn't know about this, right? Nobody told me. And of course, Leslie will say, yes, I did tell you. I've been telling you. I've told you three times. Did you not listen? And the answer is yes and no. Leslie might, of course, say, no, the answer is just no. You weren't listening, and you hear these things. But the answer is yes and no. Yes, I heard it. Yes, I remember acknowledging that this thing was going to happen. Um, Maybe I put it off because it was a couple weeks away. Yes, I even agreed to it. But also, no, did I really pay attention? Did I really think out the implications did I really, did I sort of mentally schedule it in my, you know, brain calendar? Or did I put it on my physical calendar? No. What Luke is to actually telling us about is how easy it would be to hear and not hear the message, the word of God. How do we hear the message that God has for us? How do we hear God? How should we respond? So there's two lessons just in this paragraph that are very easy to miss. The first is this, don't miss the ordinary way The Word of God comes to most people. The Word of God comes to most of us in very ordinary ways. Because notice, the shepherds got an angel, but everybody else just got a shepherd. But the shepherds got an angel. The angel shows up and speaks, and the shepherds had no problem paying attention, right? An angel shows up and speaks to you, and all of its sheering brilliance, you're not trying to check your phone. You're not trying to, yeah, check your latest Snapchat or or see what's on TV. You're not saying get out of the way. You have no problem listening. But even the shepherds got an angel. Everyone else just gets a shepherd. And shepherds in that day and time, as I've alluded to already, they weren't scholars. They weren't magistrates. They weren't even soldiers. They were just ordinary people, seen as kind of the bottom of the social ladder even, in fact. They were not people of high regard. One commentator put it this way, He writes, shepherds in that society were despised, distrusted, and deprived of their civil rights due to their nature of of their work with certain animals. So they couldn't sacrifice animals in the temple. It is as if God were trying to make it crystal clear to what kind of people the good news of Jesus comes. It does not come to the rich and powerful, those who have no sense of their need. That's not the way God works. He does not reveal his ways to the Caesars of the world. He is the God who sends a messenger to shepherds. And most of us receive the word of God from a shepherd, right? Not an angel, most of us. Now, what does this remind me of? Well, here's what it reminds me of a little bit. In the Bible, you see, we see the authors of the Bible. As we read scripture, we encounter Moses, we see Isaiah, we see Peter and Paul and John. We see the people who wrote the Bible, And these are the people who had revelations. Some of them saw angels. They saw visions. The prophets, you know, had the word of God directly spoken to them. It was very easy for them to pay attention. So they got the spectacular. 
the rest of us just got a book, just a book, and sometimes maybe a preacher, right? And my point is, sometimes it's very, very easy to ignore this book or this preacher. It's very, very easy to not pay much attention to. We know we should read the Bible more. We do. But it's hard, isn't it? It's challenging. Of course, this Wednesday, right? New year, new you. And uh, so perhaps many of us will have this goal again this year um, to read the Bible all the way through in 2020. And that's a great goal. And I, I think a lot of us do that. And as we should, I love that we have our ongoing 365 plan. And so you've got a plan right there on your seat this morning to do this again. But perhaps many of us have tried this in the past, and it's just so hard, isn't it? And so we get to the second half of Exodus, and we call it quits, or for sure by Leviticus 3, right? Thankfully, in our 365 plan, you start Wednesday. I think we start in the book of Luke, and so you can rehash this passage right here. But my point is, for most of us, we get the Word of God in very ordinary ways, ways that would be very easy to ignore. Which leads us to the second lesson in this paragraph, which I'm just saying, take a lesson from Mary. Look with me at verse 19. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I love the fact that it didn't, that Mary didn't say, I don't have to listen to these shepherds. For crying out loud, shepherds. I had an angel come directly to me. Why is this riffraff? Why are they coming to us and trying to look at my baby? No, she listens to the angel, but she listens to the shepherds too. And what does she do? It says she ponders and treasures in her heart. The word ponders here is a cognitive word. The Greek word used here means to connect, as if to say, how does this connect with everything else that I know? How does this, how does this make sense? How does this connect with the other events in my life and what's going on? So when we hear the message of the word, how do we hear it? We should ponder it. We should think it out. We don't just say, oh yeah, oh, I've heard this passage before. Oh, I've read this thousands of times. I know what this says. No, you say, what does this mean? And how does this connect with the other parts of the Bible? And you connect the dots. That's pondering. Now to treasure has more to do with the emotions. Because the Greek word here that's translated treasured literally means to preserve or to keep alive, to keep within oneself. It's the idea of relishing or savoring something. You really treasure it. And so we're, we're reminded here that she doesn't just ponder the message. She treasures it. She, she doesn't just seek to understand it mentally. She seeks to engage her emotions. She, she wants to keep the fire alive inside her heart. She wants to really treasure it. She wants to take it all the way down in until she savors it and experiences it. And you know, this treasuring is not so much often a technique as it is an attitude. Don't underestimate your ability to hear and not hear the Word of God. Do you remember the parable of the sower in Luke 8 and in other Gospels, where Jesus is talking about how the seed is the Word of God, and it falls on some soil where it never grows at all, and it falls on some, uh, some falls on rocky soil where it grows quickly, but then it's quickly scorched by the sun, some falls among the thorns and it's choked out as it grows. What's all of that about? It's about the fact that most people's hearts hear but don't hear. And of course, a lot of people just don't believe it. But plenty of others say, oh, I believe, and yet I just don't, they don't take the time to ponder, to treasure it, to meditate. It doesn't take root. And so it never begins to grow. It never goes all the way down in where it can change their lives. Do you want to be like the crowd 
that is just amazed at what the shepherds said? Or do you want to be like Mary? Or put it another way, do you only get something out of Scripture when you hear it taught on Sunday mornings? Or can you study it and ponder it and treasure it on your own? Can you hold your own attention with the Word of God? Can you meditate on it and chew on it until it's like fire in your bones? So that's number one. As we reflect on and respond to Christmas, we need to hear well. Secondly here, Luke's calling us to make peace. And this is from the middle section, verses 13 and 14. It says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now when you first read this, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's almost like it's saying that the only people who receive this peace are those that God's favor is upon, are those who grasp God's grace. What is God's favor after all? It's his grace, right? And so is this peace that Jesus brings, is it only for those who are Christians? Or is it for everybody? Especially in light of verse 10, where we see the angel says to them, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for, for all the people. And the reality is that it's somewhere in the middle. Because here's the reality. Luke is trying to get across that one of the things it means to become a Christian is you give God the glory, you surrender your life to him, receive his grace, and you will get peace with God. And one of the most radical and important and counterintuitive themes of the whole New Testament that we especially see in Paul's writings, especially in chapters 5 through 8 of Romans, is that before we become Christians, we're actually at war with God. We don't have peace with God. You see, most of us don't believe that. In fact, almost nobody believes that anymore. Many people say, I just believe in God, or maybe I'm not very passionate about God, or I'm, I'm indifferent to God, but almost none of us say, I'm at war with God, or I hate God. And yet Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, that the mind governed by the flesh, in other words, the non-believer, is hostile toward God. It's at war with God. And if you're not a Christian, the Bible says that you and God are enemies. That's what Paul's trying to get across in parts of Romans 5 and Romans 8. So for the non-believer, until you see that you're angry with God and hostile toward God, you don't really understand yourself yet. You don't really understand one of the core battles taking place in your heart. You see, the irreligious person openly and overtly asserts his or her independence against God. They don't care. They're very open about that. They say, God, I don't need you. They openly say, God, I don't really want you a part of my life. I don't need you, and I'm going to live the way I want to live. But then here's the religious person. And many times the religious person covertly asserts his or her independence against God. They just shroud it in all of these religious activities and behaviors. And so the religious person comes and says, well, I'm going to obey the Bible, and I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to pray and come to church and do everything a good religious person does. And now God has to bless me and answer my prayers. God has to give me a good life. It's sort of that karma mentality. And so, God, I've done your part. You need to do, I've done my part. You need to do your part. In which case, what's going on? You're just trying to control God by your good deeds. You don't really trust him. You're just asserting your independence. What Paul's trying to say in Romans is no matter who you are, whether you believe it or not, you're hostile toward God. And you can't stand the idea that he is really in charge. 
And you are deeply committed to the idea that only if you were in charge of your life would you be happy. And Paul says the mark of a real Christian, and not just a nice person, and not just a religious person for that matter, but a real Christian is, a real Christian comes to realize that hostility toward God. And they realize not only have I done bad things, but even the good things that I've done, I've done with wrong motives to assert my independence from God. I'm doing all of these good things, but I'm really doing them for myself, if I'm honest. I'm not doing them for God's sake. And therefore, a Christian says, I need to be saved by grace. Because even the good things that I've done, I've done for wrong reasons. I've done them selfishly. I need to be saved by grace. And when you say that, when you rest in the work that Jesus Christ has done for you, and you turn away from your former way of life, you're making peace with God. And that's the reason why Luke can say, back in chapter 2, verse 14, that grace and peace go together. That people who understand the grace of God are people that now have peace with God. But is that all that this verse is saying? I don't think so. Because as I said, first of all, it does talk about peace on earth. And also in verse 10, as I mentioned, the angel does say this is good news for all the people. Therefore, we also need to remember this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that all of his disciples are peacemakers. Now, what's a peacemaker? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Here's what they are. Peacemakers are people who, because they've learned to make, make peace with God, they admit their flaws, they swallow their pride, they, they surrender to him, they surrender control, they don't stand in their own dignity. They're free to make peace with everyone else around them. In other words, Christians are people who, first of all, make peace with God, and then secondly, go out and make peace with everyone else they encounter. Christians should be going out into the world and showing everyone how to be peacemakers. We know when to admit that we're wrong. We're free to do that because our self-image isn't based on always being right. It's okay to say that we're wrong. We know how to forgive others. We know how to reconcile with people. And just by doing that, by injecting ourselves as Christians into every part of society, we become forgivers, we become repenters, we become agents of reconciliation and change all around the world, even between races and classes, between members of the family, between neighbors and neighbors. We show people what it looks like to love our enemies. No other religion talks about that. Christmas means, first of all, that on the basis of the grace of God, peace with God is available. And secondly, that if you take peace with God down into your heart and soul, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. And the world is better off for it. So number one, make peace. Secondly, I'm sorry, number one, hear well. Secondly, make peace. And finally, the last of the lessons is fear not. Fear not. Look with me at verse 9. Again, we're going backwards through the passage. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They were terrified. But I love how the old King James Bible says it, and how Linus says it in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. There it says, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, right? And they were what? Sore afraid. Sore afraid. They don't write things like that anymore. Sore afraid. And that's good. That's really accurate. Terrified is a good translation as well. You know, what the Greek word actually says is, it says they were megaphobic. 
and that it uses the Greek word phobeo, which is the Greek word for fear, and uses the word uh, mega, which we've all heard of, which is the Greek word for great or grand. They were megaphobic. They had great fears. They were terrified. And the old English way of putting it was that they were sore afraid, almost as if they were sore with fear, right? Ah, I can't move. I'm sore with fear. And the angel doesn't ignore that because the angel comes and right away says, do not be afraid. Or again, the old King James Version puts it like this. The angel says, fear not, for behold. And I love this because the angel comes to these lowly shepherds and says, I know that you live a life of fear, but you don't need to be afraid anymore. If you see what I'm showing you, fear not, for behold. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, Let's notice that when God, when, when God shows up or when an angel shows up, when God's glory comes down, people are always terrified. Why? Well, let's first of all maybe remember, there's so many passages in Scripture where this happens, but remember the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is perhaps the first place that the glory of the Lord comes down, and many times, I mean, at first it's great, right? It says the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. But later when God comes down, Adam and Eve, they're terrified. Adam and Eve were originally put in paradise in the Garden of Eden. And let's consider the fact that because they had a perfect relationship with God, there was no fear in their life whatsoever. If you had a perfect relationship with God, there would be no fear in your life. So what are the things that we're afraid of? We're afraid of being rejected by people or failure, aren't we? But if you were just completely filled with God's love, you wouldn't care what people thought of you. You wouldn't care if your plans failed. If, you wouldn't care about that. You would not be afraid at all. Here's something else we're afraid of. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of circumstances. We're afraid of bad things happening to us. But if you had a perfect relationship with God and you knew he was in control, you would trust him. And the reason you're scared, the reason you're worried, the reason you're anxious, the reason you're afraid is you don't trust him. If we had a perfect relationship with God, we wouldn't be afraid of rejection or failure. And if we had a perfect relationship with God, we would not be afraid of bad circumstances, terrible things happening to us. But of course, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they turned away from God, when they decided to be their own masters, to be in charge of their own life, the first thing you see, if you go back to Genesis 3, you'll see almost immediately they felt fear and shame. Why? You see, what went into their heart and what went into our hearts was the lie of the serpent. And do you remember what the lie of the serpent was, basically? The serpent basically said, you need to be in charge of your own life. You need to call the shots. What is God, who does he think he is telling you what tree to eat from and not to eat from? If anyone else is in charge of your life, you will not be happy. That's what the serpent said. You need to be your own master. You need to be the captain of your soul. And that lie has gone down into every human heart and every human soul. It's in all of us. And as we mentioned earlier, it's one of the main sources of our behavior. And it always creates fear in us. It creates fear all over the place. We are afraid of rejection and failure. You know why? Because we have to earn our self-worth. We have to earn people's love. And if we're not constantly getting love and affirmation from people, we just die inside, don't we? It kills us. 
We've run away from God so far that in our minds even we understand that God's love us, that God loves us, but in our hearts it feels so far away, it just feels very abstract and unreal. We don't feel his love. And as a result, we're slaves to what people think of us. We're slaves to our performance. We're slaves to our parenting. We're filled with fear. We're driven by fear. Oh, so we are afraid of the future. Because, see, we're masters. And yet, as masters, we can't control history. We can't control the future. It's one of the reasons that tragedies freak us all out. It's because they make us realize that we're not in control. And bad things can happen all the time. And so we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of circumstances. We're, we're sore afraid. We've turned away. Adam and Eve turned from God, and there in a moment, they felt fear and shame. And what did they do? They hid. And that's what sin makes each of us do. It makes us hide from God. You know, it's not like in the modern alien movies. Think of old classics like E.T. or Men in Black or maybe even Stranger Things. Although that's not really an alien, it's a it's a monster, but where the aliens show up and everyone just sort of looks and gawks at them and goes, oh, gee, would you look at that? Huh. No, when, when in the Bible, when God or angels show up and God's glory is revealed, nobody's going, hey, kids, go get your mother. Hey, let's, hey, take a look at this. No, when God shows up, everyone's terrified. Why? Why is it that even when we're far from God, we're afraid, but when God comes close, we're even more afraid? My best way to explain this would be with just a few illustrations. So, for example, if you tried to impersonate a police officer, you're nervous, probably. But if a, real if a real police officer started coming toward you, you'd really be freaked, right? Because they would expose you. If you're at some party or in an event and you decide to pose as a rocket scientist to appear smart, you'd be nervous. But if a real rocket scientist came into the room, you'd be petrified, right? Or if you were really proud of being smart, and then you got into the presence of somebody infinitely smarter than you. Or you were proud of being strong or being talented, but then you got into the presence of somebody infinitely, infinitely stronger or more talented than you. It's intimidating. All of those things are just little glimpses of what it's like. You see, we have made ourselves our own masters, and we are unqualified for the job, and we know it. If you've ever gotten a job that you were terribly unqualified for, you're walking around, you're just filled with fear all the time. We've taken a job as the Lord and Savior of our own lives, and we can't do it. And we're very, very afraid. We're still the ones deciding what's right and wrong for us. We're still in charge. We're still our own masters. We don't submit to God's will and God's way. And that's the reason we're riddled by fear. But when God comes near, we're terrified. Why? His beauty shows us our ugliness. His power shows us our weakness. His glory shows us our darkness, and we can't take it. And the angel comes and says, I've got the solution. And you know what the solution is? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Because he says, fear not for behold, which means to the degree that you behold these things I'm telling you, to that degree you will lose all your fears. What does the angel say as a solution? That's right here in verse 11. That's the answer. Today, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the one true master. 
Jesus came to the earth, gave up his glory in heaven, so that one day you and I could experience that glory in all of its perfection. Jesus gave up his peace. He gave up infinite peace to suffer and die as a man so that one day you and I could have everlasting peace. Jesus gave up his very life, and yet three days later came back to life, defeating death so that now we can have eternal life. And that eternal life can start right now today if you want it to. Do you want to lose your fear today? Your fear of rejection? Your fear of failure? Do you want to be filled with his love? Completely forgiven, completely accepted, completely at peace? You need to rest in his salvation. Stop trying to save yourself. It's exhausting, isn't it? Surrender to your Savior today. We find here that Christmas compels us, number one, to hear well, to make peace, and to fear not. He has come for all of us, and we are misfits. We are. Whether we care to admit it or not, we're misfits. But thankfully, you know what? That's who he came for. Because, as the scriptures say, for even the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Father God, we think this morning on just the simple message of Christmas. And yet, Lord, for you, it wasn't so simple, maybe. You left the glory of heaven to come to this earth, left infinite peace to come into this broken world, dirty, and you're placed in this manger, in this stable. But Father, you did it for us. Father, may we hear the message today that you have for us. We, most of us, don't get an angel, God. We get a simple book, and yet we have the very word of God. Father, would we listen to it today as you speak to us? Father, we need peace. We know that peace only comes through your grace. And Father, so many of us, we're just riddled with fear. Or God, that takes the shape of anxiety and worry. And God, oh, what does the future hold? Father, we can trust you because of Christmas. So God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. God, thank you for what that means for our lives. God, that one day we will no longer be misfits. We'll get resurrected bodies. We'll be with you in glory. Father, we can't wait. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.